Hi there. Thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. If you enjoy these podcasts and live in the London area, then please do come down to the new Fantasy Animation screening series at the Cinema Museum in Kennington. On the 20th of September, we'll be debuting with Jason and the Argonauts, Harryhausen's masterpiece, which we featured on the podcast but a few uh, months ago. And at the event, we'll be joined by animator Astrid Goldsmith, who's kindly agreed to take part in a Q&A following the screening. Astrid, who won- runs Mock Duck Studios, will also show her two-minute monster movie, Polymer, which was inspired by Jason and the Argonauts and has a mix of puppet animation and humans. The doors open at 6.30 for the bar, but the film starts at half past seven and tickets are priced at £6. You can find all information on the Cinema Museum website, that's cinemuseum.org.uk, and you can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook. But for now, enjoy the show. Hello again, listeners, and welcome to the brand new shiny episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So this is uh, an exciting moment for us, Alex, because it's just me and you. I know, it's it's weird. It's I've been a been, while. It's been a few episodes where we've been uh, had loads of wonderful guests and it's been a sort of whistle-stop tour around the world of fantasy and animation. And now it's just the two of us sitting in a room with microphones again. But this was, I feel like, a calculated decision because the last episode that we did together um, was the Fleischer Studios' uh, Gulliver's Travels. So that was the last time that it was just me uh, you in a room with some microphones. Me, you, and Gulliver, <laughs> Gulliver. Uh, in a room. And now it's me, you, and Mr. Bug Goes to Town, which is, I believe, the second and last yes. uh, Fleischer's uh, feature. Is this correct? Yes, so Mr. Bug Goes to Town, which was released in uh, well, 41, back into 41, and then into, had some previously in 1942. Um, this was, uh, yeah, an interesting film. I think we just, we've just watched it, and normally we, we begin these podcasts with a sort of introduction, but I actually don't know where to start, because I was. We were. I think at one point I was shaking my head in the film. I I applauded. I laughed. I went. This is amazing. This is wonderful. You turned to me and went. This film is incredible. Um, <laughs> it was something I wasn't expecting. I'd never seen the film before. Know the Fleischers' work. And as you say, this is only the second of their two feature length. They've made some shorts, but they only made two feature length movies, of which this is number two. And I think we can say now, having seen this movie and having seen Gulliver's Travels, that we are Fleischer Fleischer fans. We big, are. Big of F, big FF is. Can't say the word, but that. Uh, yeah, big, we, big fuzz. Fun to be, more difficult to say. We are Fleischer fans. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think if I had to sort of summarise um, this mini Fleischer festival we've been having, some more fuzz. Fleshtival. Uh, Carry <laughs> would on. Be, would be the festival of scale and opportunity, because it's interesting that watching this movie and thinking back to Gulliver's Travels, both films are very interested in the representation of different scales. In that, in that previous movie, we had uh, the Lilliputians and Gulliver and the sort of play with scale on that. And in this, obviously, movie, we have insect world versus um, human world um, with a hefty dollop of the bug's life thrown in. So I think uh, it's not just us that have seen this movie. No, I, I was going to say, actually, when I was watching it, this film felt, and I, I deliberately didn't really read up on the film beforehand, didn't really know much about it, other than the, perhaps the industrial structures um, that support it, that it is one of only two feature length, well I say feature length, an hour and 15 minutes, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something quite interesting in, in the film because it felt very familiar to me. Like watching this movie, it's very, it, it, it could have been made, I think I said to you at one point in the film, I said this could have been made within the last couple of years in terms of some of the, the scenes and the set pieces. But the way that it sets up um, the insect world versus the modern human world, um, the threat of the human world onto the insect world, Felt very a bug's lifey, felt very antsy, but it also felt very, I don't know, Ratatouille-esque or a B-movie-like. That sort of conflict um, set very much within an American um, location, that relationship between the uh, kind of, uh, quote-unquote, the aggression of the humans and the goodwill of the insects um, and the bro- and framed by a kind of broader environmental message, um, which I know we were talking just, just off air about uh, space and the ro- then the role of fantasy in this in this. Um, uh, the, the, the way the film constructs two interconnected, interdependent worlds. Yeah, I, I was just amazed how sort of um, nuanced and available for interpretation this movie is, because I think you can read it as an environmental story. I think you can read it as a sort of uh, almost nightmare slash fantasy about urbanization versus rural life versus um, sort of suburbs. And, the, you know, I think... 
I, you know, I, I'd need to do a bit more reading up onto sort of US social history, but I'm interested in the fact this film comes out in 1941. Yep. So this is sort of post rapid urbanization of the 20s, post-depression, but also pre the widespread suburbanization of America. And there's lots of stuff in this movie about the anxiety of where you live and the redevelopment of certain spaces. Uh, the the uh, what's the word? Um, I I don't know. Yeah, um, you don't in know. terms of the con- I mean, well, in terms of the context, you said it was released in 1941. Obsoleteness. Yes. The obsoleteness of certain spaces and the modernisation of other spaces. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm interested in the representation of humanity in the film anyway, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like metaphorical. It's not represented in its completeness. So humanity is this encroaching representation. Well, it's connected to the um, threat of encroaching urban sprawl whilst. The humours are faceless, so there's something quite kind of charged about that. In terms of its release, you know, it's an American uh, cell animated feature. We were, again, we were watching. We perhaps broke all the cardinal rules of screenings where we were talking during the screening, yes. but going, okay, so where does this sit? And, and this isn't going to be a podcast about the film's comparisons to Disney, but at the same time, it was really interesting for us to, if we think about Snow White in '37, Pinocchio in '40, Fantasia in 1940, uh, and then Dumbo '41. Um, Bambi 42, there's something quite interesting about where that film sits in relation to those movies. And it, it felt quite quite similar in lots of ways in terms of the character design, but um, it, it often, in some cases, came before the films that we thought it was spo- you know, spoofing. Well, or- I, 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 um, I think that has some... I think there are certain chimes with some of the issues of, in Pinocchio. I think there's some racial politics yes, going absolutely. on in here that are very... Um, that to do with, with class as well and urban um, culture, which is which I think we could explore as we go along. But as I say, I'm, I'm sort of keen. I actually think what's, this film has its own voice. Um, in a way, I, I did... Gulliver's Travels, I really like, but that did feel like a film aware that it had to do something a bit similar to Snow White. This yeah. did feel much more like a film saying something on its own. And, um, and yeah, I think there's lots to unpack. I'm aware that, that, that unlike quite a lot of the sh- um, examples we use on these podcasts, people probably might not have seen this movie. So maybe yeah. we should if we can, try and pay some attention to the plot and what happens in it. So let, maybe we should start at the beginning. That seems like a, a perfect place to start, as no yeah, one said. Yeah, I mean, do, doing a little bit of research into the movie subsequently, um, I've read that it was meant to be an adaptation of a, of a book, The Life of the Bee, um, released by Paramount, um, an animated feature film released by Paramount, um, but influences that are adapted from uh, Morris Maeterlinck's book, The Life of the Bee. Um, it seemed, but the narrative is very. I mean, it's it's very typical or classical in the way that it sets up a community, then it sets up the villain within that community, and then it sets up um, quite a traditional conflict between uh, rapid modernization and certain kinds of traditional values. Well, 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 sort of. So the story is that there's there's our hero Hopperty the grasshopper. Yeah, and I think. Wonder which was was he called Hopperty before he was was he born a grasshopper and they said we called him Hopperty. Oh, or, I see. Which came first, you know? The, the, what, what, what the other alternative would be he was named Hopperty and then they realised he must be a grasshopper. Yeah, which, or he uh, was born into <laughs> grasshopperness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some people are born grasshoppers and some people they were have made. Grass, They're made. made grasshoppers and some yeah. people have grasshoppers. Become great thrust, grasshoppers. Thrust. Fund them, and um, Hopperty definitely has his grasshopperdom thrust upon him. Yeah. Uh, he is our sort of um, hero. He's a kind-hearted, slightly very all-American. I found yeah, him very yeah, yeah. all-American. Sure, uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, so all-American, you know, uh, yeah, plucky, uh, good egg, good egg kind of thing. Um, he is courting uh, Mrs. Miss um, Honey Bumble. Honey Bumble, who is the uh, Daughter of the sort of local shopkeeper, yep. Mr. Bumble, who yep. is surprisingly a bumblebee. Yeah. Um, those, but there is a there is a spanner in the works because the local landowner, really, See, and sort of so gangster, is, yeah. hoodlumy, slightly Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, slightly um, Monopoly Man, slightly Monopoly Man, slightly the Fox from Pinocchio. Yes, um, yes, yes. yes. Uh, who is who also wants to marry Honey Bumble and is using lots of sort of threat intimidation. Um, uh, you know, with uh, trying to put rents up and things like that to intimidate the local community into basically doing what he says. So we know he is the symbol of kind of capitalism because he has a cigar, uh, sort of a general cartoon rule. Right. 
I have lots to say about cigars in this movie. Wonderful. As, as, the, as the resident Freudian on this podcast, sometimes a cigar isn't just a cigar. Yeah. And uh, this is definitely an example of that, but more on that later. Okay, so expect later games There is a, there is a, whole, no there is a whole bullet point in my notes about cigars that okay. I want us to get to. But yes, he is smoking a cigar. So yeah, on one level, he is the embodiment of capitalism, embodiment of sort of ruthless capitalism. He owns all the properties. He is clearly exploiting all the people. Yeah. Um, and they live in this sort of park um, yeah, it's in, a, in the middle of a city. Yeah, it's a, and, and so that's, yeah, it, the, the film sort of sets up as it's, okay, so he, the, in many ways the film is like New York, like it's New York. Um, what's interesting about the film is that it sets up the adult world first, then we dive, we'll talk a bit about the opening sequence, but yeah. it dives into the into the world of the, the insects. And there we have the establishment of a community, as you say, you have um, Hopperty, who is a returning grasshopper into a land that he doesn't uh, recognise. And anymore. it's not really said where he's been. Is, no, that's, that's a weird thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so he's... So he's not there, he's been away for a while, but he comes back in that the first 10 minutes of the story. It's like, it's like... Uh, Simba returning to Pride Rock. I mean, I was going to go with Odysseus, but fine, fine. sure. Uh, and uh, Scar's version of Pride Rock is very different to Mufasa's version. So the idea is that Mr. Hoppity, or Hoppity, the hot grasshopper, has returned to a land, the lowlands, as they are called, that he doesn't recognise, presumably because of a threat placed on the community by two real forces. One is C. Bagley Beetle, this, this kind of magnate, this property mm -hmm. magnate, and the other is the wider world of the humans. And the film is really about those two sets of conflicts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the way it plays those two conflicts as to which is the most important and which is the least important yeah. and which is the most ruthless and sort of seesaws throughout the movie is really in a really interesting way because what you get at the beginning well, in this incredible opening sequence actually I don't know if you know how this was made but it looks to me a real sort of 3D model of a city like a, this is a you know a, a real human city vaguely New York-esque right and and the, the buildings are sort of this site and object of fascination um, in the film uh, the skyscrapers um, are 3D. They are, um, uh, you know, they, 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 they aren't cell animated. Or if they are cell animated, they've had something done to them beforehand. Yeah, it looks very, I mean, I did make a note about multiplane camera, which is something we've talked about, but I, I don't know whether it was, and I need to do a bit more research, both into the use of rotoscoping in terms of the representation of the humans, but equally the representation of the town into which we and Mr. Bug return or yeah. visit. Um, there is a sense of depth and dimension, um, and I think that is really important for setting up the placing of the insect community very much within another world. You have to set, have to have that sense of both small community and a, and a framing community, i.e. the humans, um, because that's really where the drama and the jeopardy of the, of the film come from. So you, you need to get a sense of placement, that this is a world inhabiting or, or can be found located within yeah. another world. And if you think about it, it starts with this sort of urban metropolis that is a site of sort of spectacle, technological spectacle. It moves into a park, which is, you know, a sort of nominal version of Central Park, I think. Yeah. Um, and then in the park, it zooms into this little insect town it's not a village is it it's a town it's got um shops it's got stores it's a insect town this provincial but, but, life but, but an insect town surrounded by foliage and grass and isolated from the rest yeah. of the world so it's very much a sort of great big metropolis into park into tiny sort of provincial town well what's really interesting about and, and actually as we for the first time in this podcast as we are talking um i've stuck the opening sequence and we are currently watching as we talk and what's interesting about the opening sequence to the film as you said it it plays through different regimes of scale mm -hmm. it is almost the exact opposite or the inverse of the closing sequence to ants the 1998 um uh, computer animated feature film that was uh produced by DreamWorks uh, so as a kind of it was released a few months before uh, Bugs Life which was released in the November I believe um, and what's interesting about the closing sequence of ants is that uh, all the film really takes place in the world of the ants and then the final sequence is the camera goes back and you reveal that all the activity that's taken place in the film has really only happened across a period of about two feet but in ant terms it's it's kind of massive mm -hmm. uh, and you pull back and you have the Chrysler building you have the Empire State building you have an, um, the trade World Trade Centers this impossible skyline and so it's this this film begins with the exact opposite you go bit from big to small um, and you know we're what a minute in and the film still hasn't got to its primary location we're mm -hmm. still when we go from this cityscape into a park 
down. We have a, there's a character who drops a, um, in fact, a, a match. He's just lit a cigar or lit a, lit a cigarette and he dropped a match. Uh, and then it's we follow the match's journey into the grass. And now we're in the foliage. And then there's a kind of micro community. Yeah. And I have lots to say about anthropomorphism, but we'll get onto that. Sure. Um, but yeah, we're we're sort of in this quite comforting location, which we will ultimately spend the rest of the film. And we go straight into a kind of lo- uh, a sort of local shop mm-hmm. that establishes. Um, the community we that establishes the terms and the logic of this right. insect world. So you've got two threats set up there. You've got the the, the, ne- the next sort of twenty minutes of the movie is very interested in, isn't it? You've got the threat posed by Mr. Beetle. What's his full name? C. Bagley Beetle. C. Bagley Beetle, um, who is sort of trying to take over this small town because through by owning it, by possessing it, he also has a sort of uh, small gang of sort of hoodlums who do. And his they're obviously works. mosquitoes, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, and, and Italian American mosquitoes. So there's a, there's a <laughs> racial coding going on here that associates it with sort of okay, urban cities and New York in particular and, and things like that. But this small town is doesn't operate like a big city. It operates like a small town. And then the other thing that's intruding upon the small town is the big city. And what's happening is that they're in this park, but because this park is this tiny little park in the middle of the city, uh, people are constantly walking by it and they're throwing their cigarette butts mm. into the, the city and that's causing fires. Um, and it's causing destruction and it's causing um, burning down. So the city is invading the town. Yeah. Um, both the humans are, but also the force of capitalism. Yeah, it's funny because obviously we think about insects and we think about swarms and invasion of and, and, and insects as a threat. And mm-hmm. so it's playing with the idea of the relationship between insects and threat, that the threat here is narrativized and becomes kind of monetary or economic um, in addition to this outer circle. The way that you described actually the, the sort of hench flies, yeah. if we are going to call them the hench flies. So these um, uh, hench flies are swat the fly and smack the mosquito. So good gags. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny because the film is trading a lot on one of the genres of Hollywood in the 30s and into the 40s, the gangster movie. Yeah. You know, the gangster movie of the of the 30s, so Public Enemy, Little Caesar, Cagney, the kinds of stars that you... T- and this is obviously the end of the 30s and into the 40s, so um, it's playing a little bit with... It's not quite film noir, but it's, it's interesting. The film is on the cusp between film noir, and there's lots of play with shadows in the film, um, but it's also looking back, I think, to a certain kind of gangster movie or crime drama that Warner Brothers in particular were, were sort of famous for in the, in the 30s. But um, yeah, I think I like, I like the way that the film plays, or narrative, it makes a narrative out of, you know, the threat of insects, which I quite like, quite fun, quite fun. Quite yeah, cool. sure, the, th- the threat of insects and the threat of, as I say, sort of urban sprawl. Yeah, um, and, the, and the human, so this is the thing, is that the, the, the audience is aware of these two levels from the start, um, as, and, and then through Hopperty's return, he plays out this, okay, so, I can see that there are two competing forces here. There are Mr. C. Bagley Beetle, who is this sort of yeah magnate who both wants to to buy up and sell the land and stuff like that, but also wants to to um, marry Honeybee. Uh, and then the human ones, and this is how they're described: the human ones, which is quite uh, reminds me of very borrowersy, very mm-hmm. the kind of language of of that kind of micro community, how they describe humanity that they're not quite sure of. Somehow there's this world above them that they're not quite familiar with, or the human, was it human beings? I think yes, the borrowers yes, yes, or something yes, yes, they're yes. called. I think that's BFG, actually. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, maybe, is it? Maybe, maybe it's both. I was getting my fantasy mixed well, up. Well, there we are. Um, I'm, I'm now going to get a lot of people tweeting me, telling me it's the borrowers too, you idiot. Oh, okay. Just, uh, just let me, I'm just going to look that up. Just okay, sure. So, But yes, you're right. Beings. So you've got this sort of mythologizing of, of the human beings. They're very much seen as the threat in the beginning of the movie, but... But we're actually, as a viewer, I think, positioned to far more see the threat far more as this, this the beetle trying to invade the town. So you've got an internal invasion and an external invasion going on at the same time. So how, I guess one of the first questions, so how is this, um, clearly the film is, is interested in space, right. the establishing of space and, and um, different spaces, different conflicts between spaces. Mm-hmm. What was interesting was the way that the human world is represented, as I said, because it's faceless. Uh, and again, this is very much in line with a lot of uh, early CG movies where one it's dictated by the technology and that the representation of humans is one of the most difficult things to do so a lot of animated films uh, you just see the feet and obviously stuff like Tom and Jerry where you see mm-hmm. um, um, Mammy Two Shoes and stuff like that. that that humanity is represented metaphorically or through suggestion metonymically is the word um, just through hands or, or feet but you very rarely see kind of complete human form so you get it quite the world, the modern world around them is very fragmented and it intrudes through, you know, clues. And, and so that, I think that's where the cigar comes in because that's one of the first sort of intrusions of 
the human world into. You get the match at the start, but then I think there's a cigar that's thrown into. Right. So I'll. So here's my cigar. Round. Great. Um. So I think that this film is interested in multiple uh, perspectives and multiple dimensions, and it uses scale as a sort of visual metaphor for the idea of multiple perspectives and multiple dimensions and the importance of allowing for multiple perspectives on life. Because I think that opening sequence, which might be using something akin to a multiplane camera, but I yeah. don't know. Um, you know, animation technology isn't my forte on this podcast. But the effect of it, regardless as to how it's made, is very, very different. Because when those kind of 3D um, depth of frame shots appear to show landscape in something like, say, Snow White. What it is used to do is vivify a single location very oftenly. So we get the, you know, the castle, and, mm. we, and, it's, and its magnificent, magnificence is, is shown off in the frame through its depth, through its sense of, of, of fully grown worldness, if that makes any sense. Here what we get is not so much, we get lots of shots in this movie where the camera zooms in or zooms out. And, and changes what it sees in the act of zooming. So it zooms from a park to an insect town, or from an insect town to something else. So it's a multi-dimensional camera. It, it goes from one perspective to another. It's not about showing off one place, it's about showing places within places, as you said. Mm. And the cigar is a lovely little metaphor for that in the first 20 minutes, because the cigar, there are both big cigars that come from the human world and act as sort of cannons or weapons that set alight to this town and almost they're almost treated like a sort of flood or a plague or a sort of you know a mm. forest fire something an act of god and there are the cigars being smoked by um, the insects by the insects that are the smaller tiny cigars that function like cigars so there are both big cigars and small cigars in every sense of the words in these sort of opening sections and the cigar is the movement of the human sized cigar or human slash real sized cigar into the world of the insects mm -hmm. dramatises the discrepancy between those two worlds and the similarity though because yes. because both of them serve the same purpose the big cigar is the invasion of urban life onto a pastoral yeah. small town idyll yeah um and so is so is the small cigar because that small cigar, the way it's coded, is the villains. The vi villains are urban gangsters. Yeah. They yeah. are they are characters from big city dramas, yeah. and they've come to this small town. You know, um, there's a there's a a good reading of It's a Wonderful Life that talks about the nightmare of that George lives through towards the end, the alternative Bedford Falls, and the main nightmare of it is it's full of like clubs and late night saloons. Basically, it looks like a big city. And yeah. there's, there's a certain anxiety going on during this era of the moral corruption on small town America caused by the big city. And that's what's happening here. They, the, the, the mosquitoes, the bugs, the, the beetles are invading the bugs paradise mm. um, in the same way the city is. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about how then the city is represented because we don't spend, we spend both all of our time there and none of our time yep. there. Mm -hmm. So we spend all of our time in a community that is of that space. Mm -hmm. um, and so what ends up happening, as I said, is that is, or as you say, that the cigar is but one of many uh, brief metonymic references to a world that exists outside. Yeah, And so, in addition to the cigar, you have forms of transport and you have uh, things that connote movement. So you have a uh, series of traffic lights. Uh, noises, I think, is another one. Like there is the way in which this world is very much framed within uh, a broader world that is of one is the city and one is the countryside, and yet they are both coexistent. Yeah, well, that's the thing about the movie, right? Is that it, uh, it, well, the way I've painted it, it sounds like what it's saying is big city evil. Small town, lovely, and it's that's it's not that's not what it's saying. It's far more nuanced than that because uh, you know as the plot develops, we'll get there. But even in this first sort of twenty minutes, where that's the narrative that's set up, you get this extended sequence where Hopperty and um, Honey go on a date, yeah. and they go to a nightclub, and they attend a sort of you know a jazz um, song, and they dance, and they go for drinks, and they do all the things that you sort of associate with with this new urban. America. There's even a sort of bit where the mosquitoes are telling the boss about what happened, and they go. She went. They went dancing, yeah. Uh, and he was like, "Oh, well, that's all right." And he's like, "No, we didn't go dancing like you think, because you're an, you're a, of a certain generation, and you think dancing means sort of courtly, 
uh, statuary. They they stuck. They were dancing cheek to cheek, and they were dancing, you know, risque, and they were they were they were you know they were living they were living a life of of young, vibrant urban America. And the film celebrates that. Like there's 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 this wonderful bit in the nightclub where like cobwebs become like strobe lights and and uh, fairy lights, and it's really like it's an insect version of actually what looks like quite a fun you know, rip-roaring sort of early, you know, great Gatsby-esque kind of world. Well, it seems in the way that you were Without just... the tragedy and pathos. Sure. Okay, I'm just going to interrupt that pre-recorded conversation that's happening through a microphone. For another pre-recorded conversation <laughs> that's happening through a microphone. Yes, to advertise a non-pre-recorded conversation that will be happening live in person in a real place, in a real space. So this is the... Now, and let me get this right. This is the Live at the Cinema Museum Fantasy Animation Screening Series, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. I don't know about you, Chris. I like these podcasts, but I sometimes wish that I could just see people stand on stage, say things, and then perhaps watch a movie afterwards. Is there a Q&A involved? Sure, why not? And maybe... We can get involved with maybe some animators, some academics, and some other experts in the world of fantasy animation to talk about the movies and introduce them and then stick around for a Q&A. So this seems like a good idea, but surely such an event can't be happening. Well, don't you worry. It'll be happening all throughout 2019 into uh, April 2020. There'll be once a month towards the end of the year, and you can find all information on the Cinema Museum website. That's cinemamuseum.org.uk. Uh, it's in London, in, in the Kennington area, so people need to be probably based in London or around that neck of the woods, or super keen to come down, in which case we'd love to have you. And what kind of films can uh, potential audiences expect as part of this screening <laughs> series? What about Shrek, the CGI 2001 DreamWorks satire? Sounds like something I would have chosen. Sounds like something you'd have chosen indeed. What about any Ralph Bakshi? I don't know, that sounds like something I'd chosen, but why not? Why don't we throw in a Wizards from 1977? Maybe something to tie into um, the very recent Dark Crystal series. Maybe something you know, involving the Beatles and Yellow Submarine. Well, that would be great because there are previous podcasts on that. We could talk all about that. We could talk all about all those things. So if you like the Fancy Animation podcast and you like to see us do it live and in the flesh, come along to the Cinema Art Museum back end of 2019 into 2020 um, and get involved in the conversation. Tickets will be priced at £6. You can find all the information on the Cinema Museum website. We'll be having guests that will be confirmed nearer the time, um, but the first few screenings are already taking place and you can, you can find all about them. Please do come along. We'd love to see you. But for now, we should get back to the show. Sure. Without Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. Sure, um, sure, sure. There's something interesting, and this will be our only Disney reference, but there is something around... The film feels more like Felix the Cat, early Felix the Cat, and, and the use of urban space in Felix the Cat cartoons than it does the sort of sentimental or sentimentality of Disney. Why, why, so I, having never seen a Felix the Cat cartoon, you have to tell me why. Um, so Felix the... Well, Felix the Cat... Um, uh, a character created by Pat Sullivan and, uh, and Otto Mesmer, um, who debuted, I think, in 1919. Um, oh, right, okay. So quite quite early on. But what's interesting about Felix the Cat is that um, there's a lot of writing. There's a great article by Patricia Vettel-Tom that talks about him as a modern trickster. So his associations, one where he can kind of transform his body, um, but also that he's a sort of, I don't know, that, that, that image of the, the trickster or the, the person who... Um, I guess wants to swindle, but there's something quite kind of modern about the construction of of Felix the Cat. Um, as I said, yeah, he debuted in 1990, but then these are black and white cartoons that are a lot more that are a lot more surreal. They uh, take place a lot more in urban spaces, so kind of city spaces. Um, and there's something quite interesting about his relationship to a certain kind of aesthetic modernism more generally. Um, but it's it, for me, this this film feels more like the sort of dirty, grimy, trickstery way of life that Felix embodied than the sort of sentimentality of Disney. But actually, the way that you're describing the two spaces, that they are the two spaces. You have a sort of Disney-esque little sentimental space and community that could have come out of, you know, um, Basil the Great Mouse Detective or something like that. Uh, but it's framed by... No, I, I, I think that, that's so, that I'm, I'm almost saying that's exactly what it isn't. So maybe that's a really useful comparison because I think the town that it's celebrating is not a town that hasn't already embraced... The social changes. I see. Of the so then they're interdependent rather than yeah. independent. There's spaces. a sort of there is the film. The, as I say, but I'll say this again. Like the film um, is far more nuanced. What I think the film is mostly interested in is yeah, is 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 this idea of multiple, multi, a city of multiple perspectives and multiple places. Because um, you know, think about scale and the way fantasy. And talk about the, the role of the trickster. Quite often, the trickster is used to get. Like, if you think of like trickster stories, like Annecy the Spider from. Um, the sort of African folklore tradition, or Reynard the Fox from the sort of European tradition, or Br'er Rabbit from the sort of um, African American tradition—they're all giving voice to the voiceless. Yeah, they're all in their own problematic 
coded ways giving um, a, a sector of society that is not allowed into the dominant narrative um, a way of fighting against it or a way of voicing uh, um, their oppression. So what I would argue we've got here is um, not so much a celebration of small town America, but a visualization and vocalization of small town America in a town in in a, in a country that is increasingly so ignoring it. Yeah, so that's interesting. That the community that the film or the lowlands that the film largely yeah, takes, that's what it calls it, the lowlands, like, right? Yeah, that the, the film largely takes place in is a community that is not divorced from the urban no. nightlife, but it's one that is aware of it and trying to understand it mm -hmm. and trying to um, and I think this is where old um, the old Bumble character is interesting because he's obviously a representation of the uh, a relic of the past sure. it's a, so is it about a community that's adjusting to a world that is ultimately going to be invaded by these kinds of figures and these kinds of yeah, um, yeah that's what magnates who are interested in more than just a sense of community and this kind of pastoral ideal but are interested in development and expansion not kind of horizontally but vertically and and the villains of the piece are usually the ones that are trying to uh crystallize or fossilize or control that dynamic yeah mm. the, the the good guys are the ones that embrace it uh, or not so much in the sense of celebrating it but sort of negotiate it and deal with it and try to think of ways to negotiate and find compromises in this world of increasing urbanization um, and the bad guys are the ones both from the human world and in the insect world are the ones that um, are only speaking to one voice they're either trying to keep things exactly the same or they're trying to completely change things without um, celebrate without respect to tradition, the past, and its community. Yeah, it's, it's one of the t it's the extremes the film doesn't like. Um, the middle ground is where it finds its humanity. What's interesting is that the film, so Mr. Bug has been compared to, well, it's, it, it finds there's a sub, kind of substrate of, of uh, animated criticism, sort of eco-criticism that looks at the role of animated films and environmental issues um, up to something like Over the Hedge, a and even B-movies, so contemporary computer animated films, um, but and Wally, I think 2008 is this sort of really important year, 2007, 2008, where you get um, B movie in 2007, um, uh, Over the Hedge in 2006, year before, and then Wally 2008. These kind of environmental um, oriented movies. The film Mr. Bug has been compared with the film Bambi by two scholars, um, Robin L. Murray and Joseph uh, K. Human, who have written about eco cinema and eco criticism, um, and actually talk about the relationship between Mr. Bug, Ghost of Town, and Bambi through that nature and culture divide. So they talk about how Mr. Bug was a film released a few months before Bambi, um, but difference in the way that nature and culture are negotiated. Um, so they argue that. Although both films critique humans' exploitation of the natural world, they offer conflicting solutions to human destruction. Bambi proposes that humans and nature remain separate. Mr. Bug asserts that at least some humans can build interdependent relationships with the natural world. But what you're saying is that interdependency doesn't come with the film's final scenes, which we'll get onto, but actually comes from the setting up of a community that is already yeah, in a kind of give and take with that world. Yeah, that actually, the, the nat the nat there is no natural yeah. world in yeah. this. The natural world, the world under the hedgerow, is already extremely urban and influenced yeah. by cities and, yeah. and humanity. Well, so so, it's, is that so why it's, it's never... It's never that cut, cut and dry, the, the, the Is contrast. that why the film decides to, as you say, start with... It doesn't start in the world of the insects. It deliberately starts in a, in a human-sized America. Well, it, as I and said, it goes into it. That's and why and it, like, think about it. It starts with vast urban sprawl. It goes to park. park what is a park but a sort of pastoral paradise in the middle of an urban sprawl? It's the opposite. It's yeah. designed to be the opposite. Trees and things. And then it goes from there into this middle ground, into this sort of odd small town, uh, vaguely urban, vaguely rural, vaguely natural, vaguely... This is very fat in terms of kind of and what, so let's talk about space because I'm yeah. thinking of of writing that's done on fictional worlds and imaginary worlds and fantasy worlds that talks about worlds within worlds and yeah. sub creation and all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, in terms of a, a fantasy, is is this where you know because I think its relationship to other fantasy films it has a obligatory Wizard of Oz reference which you yeah is now I'm not sure that's a Wizard of Oz reference <laughs> I'm honest they say there's no place like home about three times in the movie yeah um, I'm just thinking Wizard of Oz not I mean I'm just I don't know enough about the currency of that that phrase um, I mean it feels like bear in mind that Wizard of Oz was two years ago 
to make it, and it was a reasonably sizable hit at the time. I know there's this sort of folklore that it didn't do that well at the time, but it actually did perfectly fine at the time. It's just done a lot better since. Um, but it had been hardly likely to have done worse since because it's now, I think, the most watched statistically film of all time or some nonsense right. like that. How you work that out, I don't know, but it's often cited as. But two years after, to have characters say there's no place at home quite a lot seems yeah. seems to be a reference, but I don't know whether it absolutely is. It could just be the saying. But so setting aside the fantasy of talking, you know, that... Talking animals. Talking animals. Like that. That's always a lovely sentence, though, when people say that. Setting aside yeah, the, the fact, fact that insects are dressed up, can talk, well, smoke cigars. and Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a lot to say in, about anthropomorphism. Maybe I'll, I'll say it quickly now that um, we've talked in previous podcasts about the many ways that humans or animals that could be made humans and what that human-like mm-hmm. uh, register in, in animals looks like um, and how it can be theorised. Um, and while anthropomorphism is often the go-to theory, that kind of connection between anthropo as, as um, humanity and morphe, meaning form, Actually, a lot of animated characters that are, um, I suppose, could be understood through the lens of therianthropy, which is an affiliate theory, but relates more to sort of mythology and transformation, i.e. when characters are human-like, they get transformed into non-humans, but by the end of the narrative, they're transformed back. So Beauty and the Beast would be a good example, but there are you know lots of lots of other movies. Um, but that theory has been has been discussed as a sort of well they're human anyway they were animal or non-human for a brief time and the way that they acted as those non-humans was ostensibly human. That theory has then been connected up and we could use that to describe Mickey Mouse. There is no engagement with his mouseness. Yeah. He wears, I believe you've you've referred this informally as the Mickey Mouse to rat to, to Remy the Rat yeah. scale. So I've written I've written about this, and I'm not and I'm not going to do a plug for my own work, but it is chapter four in my book. Yeah. Um, but what's isn't uh, that out in paperback soon? Chris? That is, you know what? Well, depending yeah. on when this podcast goes out, yes, it is. It's either been out for a while yeah. and is doing tremendously well. Surely on pre-release, well. if not. Yeah, exactly. Check yeah. it out online. Yeah. Um, available from all good bookstores. Um, but anyway, and read chapter four because it is riveting. But anyway, um, it has this weird, you know, Mickey Mouse is there. He's ostensibly a therianthrope. He could have been a human. There was no engagement with his um, with his mouseness. Same with... Um, well, well, except that, that there, is a, there is an importance that he's not a human, but it's yes. not necessarily that he's a mouse. Yes, correct, yeah. Um, um, he is a he is as much, or he is he's human-like in a way that other animated characters are not, or less human-like. Um, but anyway, so the, and the same with this film reminded me a lot of Basil the Great Mouse Detective, which I referred to. Re- you really like Basil. Yeah, we should do that on the podcast. We sometime. should. We should do. It's it's it is interesting. Um, but it it starts off in a similar way where you have London, and then the film goes into his version of London, which exists within the real real world London, if you like. Um, but he has his own version of London where everything is to scale. So there's no jeopardy with him trying to interact with stuff. And actually, this film does that with the cigar. It's quite nice because it's. It's playing with something that's of a different scale. Um, but when films like this, Mr. Bob Goes to Town, set up a, um, a community that is insect size and everything is in proportion, that's, that's something that can more contemporary animated films don't do. Part of the pleasure of Remy and Ratatouille is that he's constantly trying to navigate and negotiate a world that is built for people that aren't him built for characters that aren't him. So this film plays with its uh, animal characters, but it does so by creating, not necessarily, they're not anthropomorphs per se, they're actually more kind of therianthropes, to use a sort of term that, it's it's sort of affiliated to anthropomorphism. Anyway. um, They're not, they're not, animals behaving like people they're people behaving a bit animalistic yeah or they are people dressed, dressed up. up as animals so at one point one of the characters talks about uh, in fact the two two sidekicks the two hench flies if you like the fly and the um smack and squat they talk about well they're chucked out of a club in an incredible point of view shot which is something i've yeah, ne- yeah, yeah, yeah. never seen before in a film from 1941 an animated film from 41 um oh we should have worn our tuxedo suits it's not unusual that these characters wear caps and smoke cigars and have clothes that are in proportion to them um, because it's a micro community. And so that they are more human-like than they are fly-like. And there's, there's not much engagement with their insectness. What's interesting in the way that you described the cigar is that actually that is a moment where you are invited. There's a kind of modality shift, which I think is something that, that Martin Barker, I think, I believe Martin Barker and Thomas Austin talk about in a chapter on ants, where it's a moment where you're like, oh, yeah, so there are two worlds playing off of each other. And it, there's a shift in the way the spectator registers the action where you're like, oh, okay, I've just remembered that these are two worlds of different scales colliding. And it's that sort of, that cigar is 
you know, it's a, a moment of a, where there's a modality shift, where, you, where you're aware of the outside world, if you like. Yeah. Um, in terms of space, fantasy. What's going on with fantasy and space? Well, and just on riffing on what you're just saying there. I guess, riff away. Is, is riff that, away. Like, there are two sort of, I don't know, ways in which... Fa we often talk about fantasy as sort of being... Um, fantasy, I mean, we've talked about this actually in relation to um, CGI and animation before, but um, fantasy is often thought about as either... Um, additive or subtractive. The terms we actually, well, the term that I'm thinking of is from a theorist called Christine Brooke Rose, who talks about overdetermination and underdetermination, which I think I might have done on the podcast before, but hey, you know, re repetition is. Um, Consolidation. What, what is repetition? I don't know. I just, I was, I just I made was, up. Consolidation. Oh, you're doing it again. You're going to do it twice. You're doing it again. We'll cut been, that out. It'd been hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, so overdetermination is when um, fantasy acts to add something to reality that otherwise is not there. So if I say um, uh, there was once a fairy kingdom where a million fireflies wore golden crowns, I'm adding things to um, our understanding of the world through my use of language. But um, underdetermination is where fantasy emerges as, a, as, a, as something that takes away from um, takes away from our understanding of reality. Often this is used in horror as a source of sort of mystery. So, you know, a mysterious thing happened last night or something unexpected happens in the story that cannot be explained. You know, the lights suddenly all go out at the stroke of midnight. Yeah, something is being taken away and that taking away adds an element of fantasy to the story. So actually it's very similar to the way CGI is often used in shots, right? In that you add something to the shot or you take something out of the shot to make it into a CGI thing. So, well, that's good that so, after 30 so, odd episodes, we've realized that fantasy animation might have a relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah fine. Oh, thank goodness. Um, thank God for that. Um, so the cigar, the big cigar, the, the human cigar coming into the animation world overdetermines the cigar. It makes the cigar into an object of fantasy because it makes, it makes something huge appear on screen that would not otherwise exist. Yeah, hmm. um, the cigar coming in, to the, 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 the fly smoking the cigar to scale with them almost underdetermines in that it adds, um, it adds an element of mystery and humanity to a moment of fantasy. The fantasy becomes uh, charged with an element of realism by them having them smoke a cigarette. Whilst the other way, so one, the object, I guess what I'm trying to say is one, the object is made strange by being brought into the insect world, and the insect world is made less strange by the inclusion of the second object. So for you, the, the film's kind of most explicit, again, setting aside the talking animals, yeah. um, it's, the, the, it's not just a film about insects, but it's a really interesting working through of, of different spaces. Spatial of, anxieties, I yeah. would say, around urban life, around suburban life, around rural life, pastoral life, the, relate, the different ways we can relate to, to space and nature. Yeah. And, and various anxieties and the melting pot that is America at the moment, both now and then, actually, of these spaces all existing in the same country. Well, actually, on the topic of melting pots, we, let's talk a little bit about the film's um, negotiation, shall we say, of race and certain kinds of stereotypes. All right, all right. I don't know if I've got much to say about it other than it's not good. Yeah, um. well, I, I think at one point you said, oh, dear. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting is that the film is, well... For all the connections I've made to contemporary uh, computer animated films, it is very much um, in the, uh, well connected to certain kinds of North American animated stars. Mickey Mouse, Felix, as I mentioned before, uh, Coco the Clown, which is another um, Fleischer character, Flip the Frog. Uh, many of these, well, they were designed very similarly in terms of, and, and lots of silent cinema scholars, uh, Malcolm Cook is one who's talked about the visual similarities and the iconography of white gloves, wide smiles and elastic bodies and certain kinds of performative conventions. Now, a lot of other scholars have connected this up to a certain kind of blackface minstrelsy, the coding of certain characters as, as sort of um, uh, in certain kinds of, or through certain kinds of troubling identity politics. Um, Sam, Nicholas Salmon's book, The Birth of an Industry, um, talks about uh, the role of racial structures as an integral part, that's his quote, of commercial blackface animation in America at the time. Um, and so this film uses certain kinds of troubling 
um, well, there's a moment where I think it's because of the um, cigar, actually, when the cigar gets thrown in and there's a sort of explosion or the cigar leads to an explosion. Um, there is a moment where Hopperty turns blackface mm. and it becomes a sort of very brief minstrel performance. Very, very brief. Yeah, but it's a minstrel. sort of sight gag. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. And it's done, which is which is what which is worse than a fuller engagement with the kind of politics of race. So there's something quite interesting about that. The film is very much of its time and, and, and it's one of a number of characters, trickster characters potentially, who uh, share these kinds of performative conventions with a certain sort of racialized minstrelsy mode. Yeah, I mean, like. there's that moment which is deeply uncomfortable. There's a bit later on in the movie that I'm thinking of where uh, with rice... Uh, where they make some reference to sort of Chinese identity in, in a very unprogressive way. Um, there's a, a mention of Native Americans um, where, where things are... Um, things troubling. Are troubling. But actually, I would argue the more insidious in terms of it's more sort of less noticeable, but but more noticeable in that it's there more, is the is the Italian-American yes. aspect. In that which seems got, more narrative than... I yeah, know, yeah, that's it, all it that, is, that, that's throughout the movie, which is this... I mean, I've said this movie is really interestingly subtle and nuanced. It's not in terms of race, because... Very much, Af uh, Italian American is coded as as villainous yeah. and trickstery and all that kind of stuff. Thank and goodness I, Hollywood I, doesn't do that and, anymore. And, well, quite, but uh, but I I think it does link to sort of this idea of of um, where do immigrants live? They live in cities. Um, so there's there is there is part of its urban anxiety is racial as well. I think is 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 fair to say. Yeah. Um, uh, and that is a more troubling aspect of the movie, and it's not something to excuse, but it's 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 definitely there. There's something I've actually written this in my notes as a tour de force sequence. You know the sequence I'm hopefully referring to, which is the uh, kind of coming off of that racial. Um, uh, what's the word sensibility or that the film is is not necessarily progressive it's the idea of the, the jitterbug sequence um, so there's a character there's a moment where um, Hopperty is plugged in or uh, electrocuted I think um, and starts to the film's tone and aesthetics totally shift so um, yeah Hopperty is electrocuted and the film shifts to a kind of abstract expressionism we have abstract shapes um, it's really evocative of early early animation so I'm thinking of M.L. Cole's film Phantasm which is sort of a black background and a white line and it's about the ever-changing um, line that transforms so a house becomes a hippo becomes an elephant becomes a balloon but you know it's this kind of constant constant changing um, obviously the um, and then this happens and then two characters say oh look the jitterbug which is a throwaway gag but it's also kind of connecting jitterbug up to um, certain kinds of dance traditions in the US connected to and, and certain kind of I guess um, dances connected with um, uh, non-white performance so uh, Lindy Hop Jive Swing um, the Jitterbug so it's a throwaway gag but aesthetically it's kind of a shame that the line throws that gag uh, throws the sequence away because aesthetically or optically the film it, it's kind of almost indistinguishable you have this this real kind of black background these shards of white um, it's a kind of bizarre bizarre sequence in the middle of a film that is quite traditional I think a lot of a lot of the, in, in the way that it looks I was not expecting that yeah it's really really um, stri uh, striking really striking that moment um, very sort of you know um, I hate to say the word experimental because it isn't really but it's certainly a moment you know uh, a moment of experimentation and otherwise reasonably Conve um, convention I mean it is a convention I mean, I uh, conventional sounds yeah. like there are conventions I'm not sure at a point in US animation history in terms of the feature where there are that many conventions yeah. to be conventional about but um, yeah it's certainly of a particular house I mean it looks does it look like Gulliver's yeah it looks a little bit like mm. Gulliver's Travels um, but what is interesting is where Gulliver's Travels focuses on a particular human figure in a lot of its scenes as I said the humans in this are relatively faceless what we do get is an engagement with the world that as the film goes on the film shows characters that are able to use and inhabit the real world and they start exploiting the size of the world that surrounds them rather than so that there's a nice transition actually in the film because it starts off being a community and everything is of yeah, their under of their threat size. everyone stay where they are or this kind of and stuff. then then we get characters migrating mm -hmm. and moving and we get them moving across this thresh threshold between different sizes well we spaces. get the eponymous going to town uh, we do so so basically the community's under threat by these cigars being thrown into it, so they um, charge 
Hopperty to go, or Hopperty on his travels to a place we don't quite know where, um, has found a place he thinks they could move to. And the place he's suggesting is basically a sort of um, small house, suburb- for all my suburban looking house with a, with a nice garden. And a nice in, couple. That, that's in the middle of the city. Yeah. Um, so they. So it's sort of surrounded by skyscrapers, um, but they they find this little house and they move to it. And the couple are very nice. There's a moment where um, they so hide this is a the human couple. Yes, yeah, so this hu- human couple who are very nice to insects because they, they there's a moment where the, where um, they two of the characters are hidden in a uh, watering can and they find them in there and they don't they're not fearful. They just go, oh, you shouldn't be there. Let's put you back in the garden. And and so they feel like they found their sort of pastoral. Um, idol and that they found a new place to move to which which oddly enough is more in this you know it's in a more cultivated space arguably than where they were but it's safer before. but it's supposedly safer except the fence is broken and because the fence is broken humans keep trampling on their spot mm. so so there's there we go again urban anxiety spatial anxiety um, it's safer because it's more cultivated um, but people can still get there the outside world can still get there and the outside world is screwing things up for them but and this is the bit I couldn't quite get my head around in terms of the narrative so um, Hopper's travels he finds this couple and he thinks this would make a good home the couple themselves one is a songwriter a songwriter and his wife sure yeah I forgot about that element because um, why not introduce that into the plot and half so, an hour in and so the songwriter is waiting for a check that will allow him to live yeah, so, there. So the house, the house is in the middle of this city and surrounded by skyscrapers. So there, there is the implication that they are under pressure from banks and things like that to sell up. Sounds like Pixar's um, up to me. And, and move on. Yes, yeah, a very Pixar's up kind of setting. Um, although without this, it's not quite as clear in the narrative this one because we never really see the human world's version of this narrative. We only yeah. get the glimpses from the insect's point of view. So the couple need to raise some money. He is a songwriter. He writes this lovely song called Castle in the Air, yeah. uh, which probably will be playing now or at some point in the podcast, yeah. um, uh, if I can find it. We're at 19 Moonbeam Terrace Overlooking Starlight Square Where the couple in the castle Way up high in the air On the corner there's a cloud bank And we bank our millions there Where the couple in the castle but he's the, the hope is that they with the money that they'll be able to sell this song for, they can I don't quite know fix the fence fi- and stop fi- people well, jumping yeah, or basically buy off fix the... the fence, buy sort it all out, buy off yeah. the buy off the threat of the of the bank, sort their mortgage out and fix and crucially for the insects, fix the fence so people stop trampling on them. So part of the part of the villain, villainy of um uh, Bagley Beetle is qualified through his stealing of so the check is delivered yeah. and the and the the couple are solvent but the check is stolen by Bagley. So we get new we get a new dual threat now right we get the threat urban human urban life is still threatening them they're threatening them by stamping on them and they're threatening them sort of more implicitly by threatening to take their new home away from them yes and you've got a new threat posed by Bagley Beetle in that now Bagley Beetle doesn't own these places. He doesn't really want them to stay there. He wants them to go back to the old community, which he does own. Is this right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, want, he wants a skyscraper to be built on the land, but doesn't realise that it's his land as well, Mr Beetle. Bagley I, Beetle. Yeah, okay, yes. Yeah, God, right, yeah. So, no, no, no that's a third element. right. So the house is being sold off and redeveloped, I yes, think. Because they can't afford to stay there. Let's go. Because they that. can't afford to stay there. So they can't and therefore won't fix the fence. And that's so for the bugs, that's the main problem. They won't fix the fence. So they can't stay there if they don't fix the fence. If they could fix the fence, brilliant, stay there. So there's a there's a dual register going on that they both human characters and bug characters want to live in this place. But both of them can't, are being threatened with being unable to do so. Yes. Back in the other park, the other park has been bought up and being redeveloped into a skyscraper. 
No. No, it's the, the that cottage is being developed into a size skyscraper. So why can't they go back to the old park? Because Bagley Beetles there, um, presumably. Well, this might be an issue with scale that actually the two locations aren't too that uh, that aren't that far away. Yes. Um, no, they aren't. They're right at the beginning of the movie, you see it. That house yeah. is like across the road. I from think the park. it's all part of the the same kind of geography. Oh, so they're all being bought. The whole space is being bought and up by this bank. Yeah. So that the park and the house as well. I believe so. So whilst the insects are moving between these two locations, actually it doesn't matter. Both of the locations are going to go. Yeah. I think there's something. Obviously, well, the the, the couple that once the check has been hidden from them. Have we even mentioned the check? Yet? Yeah, the check. Right. The so check. they need this check to yeah. pay off the mortgage. Fine. Listen back. So we'll definitely talk about the it's, check. I mean, it's quite a hard plot. No, but if it, we but ever it, do more Holland Drive on this podcast, then I think it will get the same amount. Well, of it's there's there's an issue with this. The, the, you know, it's that classic threat of urban sprawl versus uh, the maintenance or preserving a particular kind of community. Um, I think the long and short of it is is that the couple have to move. Therefore, the um, insects don't have anywhere to live, um, and ultimately, Beetle wants the development to happen because he is a kind of symbol why of, does he want it to happen I think I don't know um, the issue is then when Bagley Beetle realises that the property that he inhabits will also be redeveloped as part of this entire skyscraper project yes he and so he, no one has anywhere to originally live. why is this taking listen, so long listeners are like I have no idea what's going yeah, on go make a cup of tea. Really. yeah go and make a cup of tea um, he originally thinks that if he can convince I'm pretty sure at least he originally thinks this has gone chaotic. That if he if he can get them to um, to not if they don't, if he can hide the check and that they can't they can't fix the fence. So if they can't fix the fence, um, people will not live in these new houses. They'll go back to his houses and he'll be in control again. Yeah. Yes. 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 He's yes. only concerned with the fence. He doesn't know about the other human stuff yes. going on. So he thinks I don't want them to fix the fence. If they fix the fence, they'll stay here in this new place. I want them to go back and live in my slums. Yeah, he wants. He's a. He's he's the worst sort of landlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so he doesn't want them to fix the fence, so he hides the check. But ultimately, Hopperty finds out this dastardly slash yes. chaotic plan. Yeah. That ultimately, he's made. listening in whilst he makes it. If you remember right, I do. Yes. Um, in fact, I'm reading a plot summary that begins with a sentence during the chaos. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the beetle and the henchman are sort of one. They're trying to. He's trying to marry Honey anyway. Yes. Um, whilst at the same time, the th the urban sprawl begins. Yes. And you have humanity is now represented. By steel girders. There's a wonderful picture with like a post that they they say a post that says new modern skyscraper to yeah. be built here. As, as I said to you, as opposed to those sort of mock Tudor skyscrapers that you so often yeah. find in middle America. Um, anyway, so ultimately the final 20 minutes of the film is where it all comes to head, where you have the development in yeah. full swing. And and what's happened is is that the Mr. Beetle, Mr. Baggerty Beetle, whatever his name is. C. Bagley Beetle. C. Bagley Beetle. He discovers that the development is going to happen. He therefore discovers that his property is very soon going to be completely worthless because it's going to be knocked down and therefore tries to turn that quickly to his advantage because if he can, if he, if he, so he offers to give the community away, his homes to everyone so they can own them and live there forever if they will, if Honey Beetle will marry him. Mm. Yes, yeah. and that's the final twenty minutes. Is oh well, like final fifteen ten minutes. Oh my god, uh, Hopperty is locked up away somewhere, so they doesn't tell anyone. Honey's about to marry the evil beetle, because, and he is doing it to give away these homes that actually will shortly be worthless because no one knows that an in, a developer's about to come in and knock everything away. What's an interesting sort Done. of sub exactly? What's an interesting sort of sub subplot is uh, that I thought was really interesting and something that chimed with uh, another. You know, we mentioned it before, a bug's life, which is how the characters don't. But Hopperty's talking about a check. So he's trying to explain to the community that when this check arrives, their problems will be solved. Um, and when it doesn't arrive because the beetle has stolen it, you have them not believing him. And he feels really out of place because the community starts to make a, make a joke of the fact, well, he, he said all this was going to happen and he, he's sort of like a failed salesman. And he goes around to all the community and he hears um, them talking in their various cottages about how, um, well, how that he kind of let, let the community down. So there was a quite a nice, his heroism is checked by the check not appearing. You know, it's sort of like a, uh, 
creates a certain degree of sort of fallibility um, that then leads into him discovering that the check was stolen. He retrieves the check, mm-hmm. tries to deliver it to the family. Um, but it's too late because by now... Everything's the... in full swing and yes. it's happening and stuff uh, like this. Yeah. Um, and then we're really into the, the last sort of 10 minutes of the film, which are the bugs trying to and the insects trying to negotiate the world that is changing around them. Um, there is a sense, I think, that the community up until that point has been relatively kind of flat and hasn't really changed the sense of community the the the, um, the world is sort of grown up around them but now it's really changing and they're having to know, um, negotiate all these sorts of like pistons and pumps and uh, machinery and cogs yeah. and all that sort of stuff there's lots of shots of them running up and down sort of scaffolding and and yeah. um, you know jumping through holes in a building site and all this kind of stuff yeah um, there's also an odd thing about time in that whilst this is all happening uh, Hoppity's trying to get the check re-delivered, yep. so that presumably takes a couple of days. Yeah, and then he overhears well, certainly with this post the postal <laughs> system. He then overhears the couple basically saying what they would do if they had the money was build a was, nice w- would build would build a nice penthouse apartment on the top of the new skyscraper and put a garden up there. Yeah, that's what they would do. Um, so this chimes with the Castle in the Sky song. Yeah, is that what they would do is build that? And Hoppity hears this and thinks that's that's what that's the solution. Um, is live there. So he takes their bugs on a journey up this skyscraper to go to this land. So supposedly, two things happen simultaneously. The bugs jump around the building site and then walk up the skyscraper when it's built and find the castle. And then the other one is that they build this new penthouse, they move in, they redevelop it, and all this sort of stuff. So, sure. an, so like the last five minutes seem to take place within about four months. Yeah. Is that fair? For, yes. For this all to make any sense. Um, but it but it plays out like a chase sequence. Yeah. And it, and it, and you know you know how long does it take for a check to clear? You know, there's there's constant shots of sort of the of the postman erroneously delivering the, yeah. the letter with them running up and down um, building sites and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Time is nonsensical. Yes. Yes. But when they finally get to the top. Um, at first, what, well, what I really yes, like they're climbing the skyscraper. Yeah, they've now got to the penthouse. They found this um, paradise. This again, it's connected to, to ants. Ants is a film about the search for insectopia, um, a certain kind of journey narrative. This is they find the penthouse, they find the garden, and then there's a brilliant one of the final shots where the characters look down over the edge. Looking at the humans, oh look at the humans! They look like a lot of little bugs. That is really interesting because yeah. it again plays out a discrepancy. And again, there are films, A Bug's Life, Ants, where characters talk about, um, wouldn't it be amazing if we were just part of this bigger world? And other characters laugh at that suggestion. But um, yeah, and it's also very, you know, very Orson Welles yeah. when he's talking in The Third Man about when he's on the Ferris wheel in Vienna, looking down and talks about them humanity looking like a lot of ants. Yeah, okay. And like and so they recognize so the ants the bugs are recognizing themselves in humanity. Yeah. So so what which is f- a comment on anthropomorphism yeah, I've yeah, heard. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what it means, but it's no. sort of really interesting because so what the solution the thematic narrative resolution is that all these anxieties over urban life versus nature versus pastoral versus suburban versus rural all these sort of shades of Grey between um, urban versus nature um, is solved by living at the top of the skyscraper. The top of the skyscraper provides the freedom, um, the sort of you know uninhibited freedom that a pastoral landscape would provide, mm. um, provided that there's the safety and the security of living up there on your own with a garden. So there's a really odd sort of mishmash of all different um, urban fantasies going on at the same time yeah it celebrates the skyscraper as a as a space that can provide freedom and 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 new perspectives on life in the same way it did with rural landscapes at the beginning of the movie well it's interesting that the uh, just to go back to that um the that eco criticism so a book called that's all folks eco critical readings of american animated features uh, by murray human that i mentioned earlier again re- revisits that debate between bambi and and uh Mr. Bug, but does so by a kind of comparison between the studio structures, um, saying that the Fleischer studio didn't have a story department, uh, they lacked a stable workforce that the Disney studio had. And so 
the studio's different organizational structures, Disney versus Fleischer, uh, suggest that the less top-down structure that was in play at Disney wasn't in play at the, the, the Fleischer studio. Has co maybe coincides with the message of in interdependence that the film mm. represents. So there's something about the Disney's, or kind of the industrial structures of Disney where it's a top-down Disney studio versus the more sort of democratic, I don't want to use the word democratic, but a, a different kind of studio structure at the Fleischer's, which plays into or is folded into a film that is about a message of interdependence. The film is far more chaotic in a good way and, well, yeah. no, in largely a good way, I think, um, in that it is chaotic in terms of its its sort of various stages of narrative. It's chaotic in terms of its different registers. But in chaos comes more opportunities for collision, more opportunities for... Um, yeah, interdependence and all this kind of stuff. You know, there's more going on in chaos often than there is in finely honed formalism. So Wells says, Paul Wells says, the Fleischer brothers embrace modernity rather than fighting against it through orthodox narrative. Um, that is then, yeah, that is played out in a in a plot that is about yeah interdependence and coexistence and a kind of push pull relationship between certain kinds of competing forces that for you plays out through space, which therefore plays out. A kind of or plays um, uh, a certain kind of fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's a hodgepodge of spatial nightmares and spatial fantasies. <laughs> well, let's. Well, I was going to say let's end this spatial <laughs> nightmare, but that's a horrible way to end the podcast. Um, I don't really have any other. other I have. Notes. I have one bit. Yeah, of, on, one factoid on. for you. Go it's not then. really an observation. It's a factoid about the movie because the movie didn't do well. Um, Gulliver's. Di I think we touched on this in the previous podcast. Gulliver's um, didn't do well because ultimately I. I think the contract they signed with Paramount was so rubbish that Paramount made all the money off it or something like that. Um, I forget now, you have to listen back to the previous podcast. But this one was pulled uh, by its distributor, Paramount, at the last minute. And it was pulled because two days after its premiere, where it received a reasonably warm perception, Pearl Harbor happened. And right. that's what that was. The, so they pulled it for its Christmas release because they felt it to be not what audiences would want. Interesting. Um, after well, that. I mean, these two. I think these two films represent, and hopefully we've given a flavour of this. They represent a really interesting moment in American animation yeah. history, where you have a studio that is um, certainly, if you read any animation history book, this the Fleischer Studio are important figures. Um, Dave and Max Fleischer, they will come up a lot, uh, largely for their shorter work. So Coco the Clown, um, more um, kind of explicitly, I think, but and, and less so about their feature length work like this is a really so th I think these films deserve a little bit more um, focus than characters that they like Betty Boop they created you know that uh, these films are interesting and we were watching them thinking yeah these are they work really well together as a pair they're very similar in, in lots of ways in terms of the interplay between um, humanity and, and and different kinds yeah. of humanity in whatever way we want to take that um, but it's because they only made two feature films, because the first one um, and the second, well, the second one in particular, you know, didn't, as you said, didn't do so well. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, fallout between the two brothers. Um, they then make, didn't make any more. Yeah, I think this, probably... one, this one basically collapsed the studio in a way, right? I yeah. don't think they did anything else after it, which but, is, a, I'd, I'd watch uh, an alternative world, you, you know, narrative where the Fleischers were bigger than Disney yeah. and what might, might have been, because, uh, Further work needs to be done on them and yeah, what, they, yeah, what yeah. they did. Well, if, if, if listeners aren't that familiar with these films, please do check them out. You, they're both available. I think they must have fallen into public ownership because of the fate of the studio. So I suspect they're all up on YouTube um, or other sort of um, you know publicly available video sharing um, platforms. Um, they're both less than 90 minutes long. I think yeah. Gulliver's is about 60 and this is about 75. Yeah. So you can get them both done before you've even seen the two towers. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's it, you know what and it's a it's an interesting double bill and at us on Twitter or you know yeah if you like the on Facebook and chat to us about it because we'd love to hear what other people think about them. I I really enjoy watching. I'm really glad yeah. we got the opportunity to sit down and watch them because I'd not seen either of them and I feel richer having seen. Well, them. I'm glad I got to got to see them without those pesky guests that we keep having. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and it's yes, yeah, it's, it's it's been it's been fun to sort of unpack them. Um, but yeah, I, I which one which one did you prefer the most, Chris? This one. Oh yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt, I think that because it was, I understood or I had a preconception about what Gulliver's Travels might be like, mm. um, both from the story and stuff I'd read about the film. This film, I came to 
kind of deaf, dumb and blind. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I and the moments where it shifted gears, I really liked. And actually, a lot of writing about the Fleischers connects them up to surrealist traditions, but also kind of a kind of chaotic business. There's a lot of business that goes on in their movies and they suddenly shift tones. And, and I felt that was played out nicely in the in Mr. Bob Goes to uh-huh. Town. So I'm glad we, we got a chance I, to do it. I don't know which one I prefer. I think I might have preferred Gulliver's, oh. but... I'd much rather watch this one. This one has I could this one could take a second viewing more. Yeah. Like I feel I got everything I needed to get out of Gulliver's. I don't need to see it again yeah. necessarily. But I could watch Mr. Bug again. Maybe not right now, but you know Soon enough. Soon enough. Um, right. We well, should say goodbye. We should say goodbye. You can always find us, of course, on fantasy-animation.org. We've just redesigned the website, so why not have a look um, yeah. and, uh, and and give Chris a pat on the back, because there's absolutely no way I did anything to help do that. Um, but you can also, of course, find us on Twitter, Fan Anim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, as well as on Facebook. Um, get in touch with the conversations, um, and uh, let's talk Let's talk Fleischer. Let's talk Fleischer. Um, but otherwise, we'll see you for the next episode. Um, that's us for